Hi, everyone. My name is Bob. the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Rudy Trejo. Rudy serves as Associate Director of Student Involvement at Washington State University. In his role, he oversees the Leadership Center and Student Involvement while also providing administrative leadership to the department and serving as advisor to the Student Senate. Prior to that, Rudy served as Assistant Director of Student Government Leadership at the University of Arkansas, where he served as advisor to the, to the student government. Rudy also worked at the, at the YWCA El Paso del Norte, overseeing their team leadership program for nearly three years. Rudy earned his uh, Master's in Education from the University of Texas at El Paso and a BA in Political Science from St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Rudy. Hey, Miles. Thanks for having me, uh, and good to be with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, can I can I give started? a shout out to my to my undergrad, Go Hilltopper, St. Edwards University? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Go We're Hilltoppers, all about yeah. We're all about shout outs on this podcast. You just you <laughs> know, whenever up. when whenever you feel moved, you get those shout outs out. So okay, I, I'll uh, try to not make it as sporadic as possible. How's that sound? <laughs> okay, that sounds good. So. We'll get started. Uh, just to get to know Rudy a little bit, we're going to go through a, a segment here called Rapid Fire. So, Rudy, are you ready? <laughs> I'm as ready as ready can be. All right. To be frank, Rudy, this is the most exciting set of Rapid Fire questions I've ever had. So let's do it. Wow. And, and so we're talking about better than, I mean, uh, Comavez and, and Kevin Krugler, our NASPA president. That's, I mean, that's a pretty high bar, so I'm very pleased with that. Well, you know, on the, on the prep, I think they gave me – Perhaps less, uh, you know, less less interesting, you know, arbitrary things about their life to ask about. You know, I think Kevin and I talked about like grilling and tennis. So I'm excited to, uh, you know, to talk about to talk about what what you shared in advance. So <laughs> I asked for your hobbies in the prep for the show, and your first response was sleeping. So I need to know more here. Do you sleep more than other people? Do you just have a unique passion for sleeping, or, or is there just something else that we need to know about your approach to sleeping? I mean, I, it, I just love it. I, I think it's an idle thing that you just get to do. Um, I don't think I probably sleep more than the average person, um, and I think as I've gotten older, my sleeping, um, it's been less sleeping, but man, I can sleep for like a good 12 hours on a Saturday if I don't have to be at work or at an event or anything. Um, I'm all about that life. I've got a new pillow. Um, I'm very excited about the <laughs> pillow. I just bought it this weekend, actually, so I'm super excited about it to kind of give it a test run. I'm actually saving the pillow for an opportunity when I can sleep long. And so we're about to start school this upcoming week, so I'm not, I don't want to use it yet. I want to save it for really like a prolonged sleep, um, and that may be <laughs> about a month from now. But it's something that I look forward to um, and, and something I'm very excited about. It seems like you have a very, like a real appreciation for sleep and a real strategic approach to your sleep. Do you think I, that I mean, that's I, accurate? I, I think that's accurate. I'm not sure. You're, you're a fellow associate director, and so I'm not sure if it's something that as associates, as middle managers, as people who are kind of in the middle of a sandwich, you know, we kind of look forward to like that rest and, and you know, we get it from the top and the bottom. And, and I, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're as strategic as I am about it, but uh, you know, I just, I do look forward to it. It, it, some, it brings me comfort. Okay. All right. So let's talk about something completely different. I know you really enjoy reading nonfiction books about how things were established. Mm -hmm. So what's the best book that you've read in this niche? 
And how do you think your interest converged around that particular, uh, like, very specific kind of book? Yeah. Um, so just, you know, the book I'm reading now, and then I can talk about the best book I've ever kind of read. Um, right now I'm reading a book about the establishment of the Federal Reserve. And as dry as it may sound, it really is. But it's just fascinating to get a sense of how this now institution, you know, didn't exist in our, in our early history as a country. And, and whether it was Jackson, you know, ultimately uh, not being a fan of it and kind of killing it at that point to where it is now and the role that it plays. It's just, it's so interesting to hear about the topic and read about it and kind of the behind the scenes aspect of the establishment of now what we call the Federal Reserve. Um, By far, and it kind of tying into like the niche or, you know, the interesting thing about the topic is the way systems are established, while they vary, it's always interesting to hear about the manner upon which they, they have come to an existence. And so when I think about even what we do in higher education, whether it's establishing a university and how universities came to be established, how we're trying to advise our students the importance of infrastructure and creating a process, I mean, it all boils down to, again, how systems are important and how systems really allow for a legacy to be, can, to be started and maintained because systems create opportunities for legacy and growth. Um, the best book, at least nonfiction that I've read, has been Team of Rivals uh, by Doris Goodwin, um, you know, mm-hmm. probably the premier uh, presidential historian. I love everything she's written. But you know, I use Team of Rivals in our leadership programming to talk about the importance of you know, reaching out and, and hearing from perspectives of, in this particular case, the rivals of Lincoln, and just, you know, having a good, healthy dialogue and a balance um, mm-hmm. when you hear from the opposing side. And I think that's so important in, in higher education and leadership programming and as uh, citizens is, you know, having conversations about that and, and really fleshing out your beliefs um, and a good understanding of, of what the other side, you know, is offering on their end. Okay, great. So, have you have uh, you had that op- that opportunity? I mean, you know, as far as like a team of rivals book. Um, hmm, that's a good question. Yes, I didn't prep uh, you on that end, so. Yeah, no. So, I, so I haven't read. Uh, I haven't read Team of Rivals. Uh, I did. I, I will say that I uh, maybe the uh, the most hipster thing about me is that I read Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton like mm. maybe 15 years before the musical came out, um, which is a, you know, a, a sort of similar, uh, similar type look at mm-hmm. uh, a person and a legacy of institutions, specifically with him, with the, the National Bank and sort of the, the mm-hmm. banking, modern banking system in the U.S. So, you, um, were, you were ahead of your time, like you said, before all these folks jumped on board you know, Hamilton, you were cool before it was cool to be cool is what you're saying. I would say that I uh, was a nerd who was really into history. And so <laughs> I uh, read a book a long time ago. And then uh, another nerd who maybe wasn't as into history, but is, you know, like an all-time creative genius happened to read that book and get inspired. It's an easy thing to do. I was all, I was all, yeah, <clears throat> I was all lathered up about Alexander Hamilton after I read that book too. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a great book. It's very persuasive. Uh, Turnout sort of, he's a great writer, Ron Turnout, the guy who wrote that book. He's a great writer. Uh, and he sort of writes like a pop historian, but he actually has, 
So like a, a David McCullough, for instance, who huh, like sort yeah, of yeah. turns out a turns out a book a year. Um, but David McCullough isn't quite as respected by like actual historians as Chernow, because Chernow is like very, very uh, meticulous in his research. Like he researches like a sort of a practicing historian, whereas McCullough researches more like someone who's trying to produce a narrative, um, which gotcha. is you know not something that that historians really love. So. Um, Good to know. Yeah. yeah. No, I've, yeah. I've not read any of those authors, but clearly I'm missing out. Um, and I'm one of those t- too cool for school type people, clearly, where I've not even heard the Hamilton soundtrack. And I, I think the listeners will probably be um, flabbergasted that I've not, but I will work on it. It's on my list of things to listen to. Rudy, we might have to we might have to edit that out. I'm worried that people are just going to turn off the podcast now. That's After that, they're working. like, this, I mean, this guy, we don't know what yeah. he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk after. All right. Yeah. So uh, to talk about something completely different, mm-hmm. Rudy, give me your rundown on the pluses and the minuses of the Bachelor Bachelorette franchise. Um, let me start off with the minus is I've not been asked to be on it, and I think they're missing out you know, <laughs> on a winning candidate, uh, either as you know the Bachelor or as a contestant, as someone aspiring to be one of the many people who live in the mansion. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think uh, the plus is that it's entertaining. You know, I think sometimes in our role specifically, um, we just need to watch some television where we don't necessarily need to think or make decisions. Um, and so I, I think it, it lends itself to that. Uh, I think a minus is, you know, and this is my personal opinion, is I, I don't think it necessarily gives a fair expectation or it gives unrealistic expectations you know, to folks who are thinking like that's how maybe love works. Um, maybe people can find love in six weeks. It's, it's conceivable. And, and maybe the first date can be a hot air balloon, you know, across Italy. Um, I cannot commit to that. I cannot financially contribute to that. And I hope the, re- the world doesn't think that I can. Um, but it's entertaining at the end of the day. It, it makes for interesting TV. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I do enjoy, I enjoy it. I actually got into it. Uh, when I had a roommate who also worked in higher education, um, and she said, like, oh, you should just sit down and watch it. And then, you know, me being the swinging bachelor that I am, sat down with my, um, <laughs> you know, Marie Calendar microwave dinner and watched it and instantly <laughs> fell in love. And so the rest, as they say, is history. Okay. All right. Um, so my next question for you, you wear a suit to work every day except for Fridays. Is that a professional expectation in Washington State or a personal standard? Um, it's a Rudy being Rudy, you know, standard. Um, I was always taught, you know, you, you not necessarily dress for the job you want, but you dress for the job that you have. And I tell my students that I've got the highest level of respect for them and the role that they do, and I'd like to think they have that for me, so I kind of wear that suit to demonstrate that. And then for me, mm-hmm. it's like a uniform. It's like a frame of mind. It's a state of mind. So when I'm in that suit, as I'm wearing one right now, I feel like I'm in a place where I can be effective in my role. And if I'm, you know, in a, even a polo shirt or khakis, I don't own jeans. I, I haven't worn a pair of jeans in six years. Um, that's just me also being weird. Uh, you know, it's, it's all how you frame it and the state of mind you're in. And so for me, it's just my expectation um, and it's, it's, it freaks students out and staff when they don't see me in a suit, they'll see me at the gym or at the grocery store 
and it kind of freaks them out. And then I'll remind them I'm just like them, a normal human being, just who's not wearing a suit. <laughs> okay, great. All right, so I want to want to uh, start with a with a new segment here. I was hoping that you could uh, you could fire up the hot take machine for us here, Rudy. I know you've got some opinions. What's bad about cats? Uh, they just you know they just lay there all day. They're licking themselves, producing hairballs, and kind of just <laughs> being all snooty. Like you know, I to each their own. Maybe I've just had bad experiences with cats. I just feel. Like, they could be doing so much more. They could be much more productive. And they just lay there, like, you know, heaving out hairballs and, 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 you know, hiding their poop in sand. And, you know, it's just not my <laughs> cup of tea. I'm, that's just me. That's just Rudy's opinion. Um, but, you know, for the listeners that have cats, you know, more power to you. Maybe you've got something, a better experience than I have. Uh, and for that, I, I applaud and thank you. For me, that's just me. I, I, I guess in, in fairness, if I may, Miles, uh, while you said what's bad about cats, I will say the good thing about cats um, is, you know, they are very uh, agile and, you know, they're quick <laughs> to land on their feet. So I think they're also, they've got great testament to the American and, and the human spirit. So there's that too. <laughs> okay. That was, that was, uh, I'm going to say that was like 50% more diplomatic than I was expecting you to be. So. <laughs> All right. So let's, so let's shift to the next segment, which is higher ed, two truths and a lie. So I'm going to provide Rudy with two true stories from higher ed current events and one lie, and Rudy's going to have to parse out the lie. The theme this time is academic protest. Rudy, are you ready for your three options? I am very much ready. Okay. All right. So our first option is, as a part of an ongoing commitment to sustainability on campus, Texas A&M recently announced plans to power a building on campus exclusively for manure gathered at local cattle ranches. Faculty members invited PETA to campus to protest, and I quote, this gross exploitation of necessary parts of the local animal ecosystem for human gain. So that is your first option. Your next option is that the ACLU and several academic groups have lodged formal complaints about a proposed TSA policy. This policy would have travelers remove books from carry-ons for separate screening prior to air travel. This would be comparable to, to uh, what happens with computers. Rosemary Feel, Executive Director of the Modern Language Association, stated, the content of e-readers won't be examined. Not so for your bologna sandwich. So books should be allowed to be screened with a cover or, dare I say it, in a plain brown wrapper. All right, so that's your next option. Okay. And then your last option is that Sarah Bond, who is an assistant professor of classics at the University of Iowa, recently came under fire from various conservative outlets. These groups objected to a recent article of Bond's in which she pointed out that classical uh, uh, sculptors painted their works and the white marble was never intended as an object of beauty. Bond contends that this interpretation came in the 19th century once the paint wore off. So those are your three options. We've got uh, we've got Texas A&M and sustainability. We have got the we have got uh, books being screened separately by TSA, and we've got uh, white marble. So those are your three options, Rudy. What are you going to go with? You know these are these are great stories, um, and you know some of them just make so much sense. I'm I kind of feel the Texas A&M one is a valid one. That sounds like something A&M is, you know, the ag college in, in the state of Texas. Um, so I almost feel like that one is accurate. The sculpture one and marble also seems somewhat legitimate, and I'm not that familiar 
with that. Is there an opportunity to perhaps phone a friend? No, Rudy. We this is a low tech operation. We cannot phone <laughs> friends. Yeah. I'm gonna then on that note. Uh, I'm gonna have to say I think the um, the one that is a lie is about books. Final answer. Okay. Final answer. All right. So uh, you were correct about Sarah about Sarah Bond and the University of Iowa. No, sorry. I, the way that I, I present, you were ultimately wrong. But the way oh. that I, I presented. <laughs> So in summary, let me let me see if I can communicate more clearly. Texas A and M was a not was a lie. That was not true, and uh, and the uh, so that means that the the book screening uh, proposal is is real. Yeah. yeah. What? Oh my yeah, gosh. I had to include that once I found that quote. I thought that was so good. Not so for your bologna sandwich. Thought that was really good. <laughs> and I love bologna. And now I'm sad. Like I'm glad the bologna will be protected. But apparently, the books that we bring on are going to have to go through rigorous screening. Good gravy. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, that's uh, apparently that's an option. So. <laughs> All right, so for our next segment, we're going to go through this kind of shortly this week, but we're going to, we're going to get to know Rudy. So this is just, uh, just to provide a little bit of background about you as a person, as a professional. So, uh, Rudy, what led you into student leadership work? I mean, ultimately, you know, like most of us in student affairs, higher ed was an active student leader, um, ultimately culminated with a student government presidency, um, and then just kind of that that opportunity of having such a great leadership experience, wanting to help others be successful in that role, um, you know, led me into it, as you kind of alluded to in the introduction, um, started off working nonprofit and working with um, high, uh, students in high school and middle school in leadership development, um, and was, you know, had an amazing experience working with those student leaders. And then ultimately got the master's degree and started kind of doing it um, within higher education. But I know for me, it was just such an amazing experience growing as a leader. Um, And then just as I got into the master's program and learning more about different leadership theory, you you know, leadership literature, um, just looking at all the different ways we're able to grow as leaders. I mean, ultimately, I was like, sign me up for it. That sounds like a great opportunity um, and something that, you know, we obviously continue here um, at Washington State University that I, I'd imagine would have that opportunity to talk about. But ultimately, it was my personal experience uh, and then really being passionate about having that opportunity for others to have to grow as, as a student leader, too. Okay, Awesome. All right, so my last uh, question for this segment is, what is the best book about leadership? Yeah, <sighs> that's hard. Um, you know, I think for me, one of the books that I just always refer to is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Uh, oh. And ultimately, you know, you, there's some great books out there and, you know, uh, just so much great literature. But I, I really like Five Dysfunctions of a Team because, one, it ha- it's a great visual. It has a great visual to it. Um, but, mm-hmm. two, the applicability of really bringing leadership and how it works in a team dynamic, a team setting, I think makes so much sense with at least, and I'm talking about leadership and higher education with student groups. Um, but it's, it's very applicable. It's easy to understand. Uh, it's always relevant. Um, and again, it's one of those takeaways that, you know, after you work with a team or you're able to utilize it and leverage it as you build, you know, relationships, um, and so for me, you know, I look at, I'm looking at my bookshelf now and I see so many great options, but for me, that's always my go-to is the five dysfunctions of a team. Um, 
you know, can never go wrong with go wrong with it. Highly advise folks to just glance at it or you know do a search on it, and you see some great visuals about it. Okay, awesome, awesome. So we're going to switch to our last segment, which is called Six Big Leadership Questions. So Rudy, we uh, have you on the podcast to talk about the great work that y'all been doing at Washington State. I know that y'all had a big year of launching a new set of leadership programs and really built out a portfolio of of programs in 2016, 2017. So. Just to establish a shared baseline for our first question here, can you provide a summary of the programs that y'all are currently providing at Washington State? Yeah, definitely. Um, Our programming within the Leadership Center, um, really as far as our flagship programs, is our tier leadership programs. Three tiers that are, you know, steeped in um, uh, student learning outcomes and specifically the social change model. So our first year is emerging leaders that many listeners may be familiar with. It really introduces first-year students to the first three C's of the social change model in a semester-long cohort program. Um, really also designed to provide students with resources, networking opportunities, and really getting them to find a sense of community here at Washington State um, to ensure that they're successful, not just academically, co-curricularly, and socially. Um, And so the program really does um, a a fair job of of introducing students to to this leadership theory, but also giving them the tools to ultimately be retained um, in their first year at WSU. Our second tier program is Crimson Leadership VIP, with the VIP standing for Values, Integrity, and Purpose, and that focuses on the next three C's of social change model, which revolve around leadership in a group setting. This program is a year-long cohort model that's led by a student director. All our programs are led by student directors, and again, really designed to further flesh out more of that social change theory of leadership, but also, you know, engages them in a variety of topics um, that uh, really strives to get them to see the applicabilities and their style of leadership in a group setting. The third program of our tiers, Leadership WSU, that we work in conjunction with a nonprofit um, here within the state of Washington called Leadership Spokane. And uh, that is the last C of social change model, which is citizenship, and also ties in servant leadership. So graduates and alum of the Leadership Spokane program um, come and spend uh, their Saturdays once a month facilitating curriculum to our student leaders. This allows for our upperclassmen to really see leadership post-Washington State University. It really introduces them to the movers and shakers in the community and really gets them thinking about their next steps once they graduate with WSU, uh, once they graduate from WSU. Um, oftentimes, our students find it challenging when you have difficult conversations um, about you know, race relations, about equality, and, and this program is really designed to take our upperclassmen students who are superb leaders here on our campus, but take them to that next level about leadership engagement post-college, because it is a different world out there. Uh, that's another year-long cohort program. And, uh, you know, the one thing that I'm, I'm very proud of is that all these programs build upon one another. So in order to be in VIP, you had to have gone through emerging leaders. To have been in Leadership WSU, you had to have gone through the previous two programs. And ultimately, we really try our best to balance out our programs with some short-term engagement, whether it's our Pacific Northwest Collegiate Leadership Conference that we hold in September. Um, we're looking at uh, inaugurating leadership catalysts this upcoming spring. We also run alternative spring breaks through um, our center. 
we work uh, with different leadership stakeholders who do leadership programming to plan leadership month here um, on our campus. And so there's a variety of ways that we really infuse leadership here um, at Washington State University. Um, and, you know, this past year we rolled out almost a dozen new programs. Um, which I'm immensely proud of, but we've also had great student staff who were leaders in that area. And so, again, we look at the great work we're doing here at WSU and really striving to be a national model for others. All right. Awesome. So uh, I know that a big part of what you all were trying to do there at, uh, at WSU was to change the culture of student leadership on campus. So. Mm -hmm. What led y'all to work towards that goal? Was there, you know, a precipitating incident? Was there, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, was there a student movement in that direction? You know, what what led y'all towards that sort of being the being the goal of the process? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it, part of it was I think we were doing an okay job in, you know, leadership programs. Um, our leadership program really consisted of pulling from a national program. And for me, that didn't really speak to the unique culture that I think our Cougs had the opportunity to gain by coming to Washington State University. And so it was ultimately the culture of we could do it so much better with the resources that we have in place and really make coming to Washington State University something truly unique because of the leadership programming that we have to offer. And so when you look at changing the culture, you look at other institutions who may be doing something, and, and uh, you know, we look at our benchmark schools, we look at schools that are in our Pac-12 conference, um, and you say, what can we do better that is unique to being a Washington State student that has the potential to obviously be replicated at a national level? But more importantly, where does it meet students where they're at? What national trends are we able to incorporate? How do we assess that we're meeting our learning outcomes? Um, how is it innovative? innovative? Innovation is huge on our campus. And ultimately, you know, we strive to really provide a dynamic uh, and innovative student experience. And so ultimately, seeing the resources and the money that we had spent in this national program and looking at ways we could make it homegrown and unique to Washington State University, meeting students where they're at, getting feedback and input and ultimately having our program student-led and student-driven, and then being mindful of leadership theory, national trends, best practices. Um, a lot of it, uh, you know, changing this culture, you know, were students saying, I just wish we had more. And so we were able to really look at all those things and, and ultimately produce, you know, our five-year strategic plan um, that really speaks to it. Um, but sometimes all it takes is just a good idea and running with the ball and seeing where you can capitalize on those low-hanging fruit and what are some of the things that need some more attention. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. So the next question is, what was the timeline of strategic planning to implementation? So, you know, how long, you know, you launched this last fall, you know, when did you start the process to, to get there, and what stakeholders were involved in the planning process? For sure. We had kind of a, an expedited timeline. Um, you know, essentially, my first semester here, we spent um, conducting focus groups with a variety of stakeholders, kind of referring to the second part of your question, faculty, staff, graduate students, um, actively involved student leaders, you know, non-student leaders, and essentially getting a feel for the climate. What is it that they 
think leadership is, what do they view leadership as our current offering, and what aspirations do they have of leadership programs here at Washington State University. So you spend you know, the fall semester getting that kind of feedback. You spend the fall semester, we spent the fall semester doing benchmarking and looking at other institutions. We spent the fall semester reevaluating our budget and our resources. And ultimately by you know, that December, um, we ultimately produced our five-year strategic plan. And so ultimately, that five-year strategic plan was really more of a programmatic strategic plan in regards to what the different programs are that we'll be rolling out over the next, essentially, four to five years. Um, And so it was important that as we build out those programming portfolios, we're also being mindful of our learning outcomes and our assessment metrics. We're being mindful of asking for appropriate resources um, as needed. And that ultimately, we're not biting off more than we can chew. Um, and so for, as, as I look back at that timeline, you know, you spend a semester doing a lot of evaluation and, you know, computer work, if you will, um, and then it's presented in the fall semester and slowly start to, you know, let it trickle out in that spring. And over the now, um, you know, we, we're now in year two of that strategic plan. And so over the next course of the three years rolling out is the other programs that will come out afterwards, with year five ultimately being a complete evaluation of our programs and our resources to determine what the next five years are going to look like. Um, And so it really was a collaborative effort between our department and other units, between our students, our faculty, staff, and ultimately getting the buy-in for this strategic plan from our most involved student leaders to our students who are, who are just, you know, kind of your nine to five students and really trying to present to them a portfolio where if they wanted some sort of leadership offering, they'd have that opportunity to gain it. Great. Okay. So uh, my next question is what are the established goals and learning outcomes for your, for your overall portfolio? What do you hope your students are walking out of? You, you've mentioned you've mentioned you know some some general ideas here, but what have y'all specifically said? You know these are the you know these are the four or five things that we're really trying to that we're really trying to have our students walk away from this process with. Yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head, Miles. We've got five student learning outcomes. Number one is describe and develop their leadership style and its applicability into their career. Um, we have an inherent responsibility to really ensure that our students are living with the skills needed to be successful. Um, in whatever career they choose. And so leadership is a key component to that. So they need to be able to describe their leadership style and how it relates to their life post-Washington State. The second one is, of course, define the aspects of social change model. You know, many institutions um, and probably many of your listeners, you know, um, prescribe to that model, subscribe to that model. And so we want to be sure that our student leaders understand that model and kind of why and how we frame our programs in it. You know, the other one is, the other learning outcome is, um, what are those potential leadership, educational, and practical opportunities that will advance their growth and development? It's one thing for students to be cognizant and aware of a theory or to be cognizant or aware of, you know, uh, literature, books, articles. But ultimately, what we want them to be mindful of is, how is this going to help you practically in your growth and development as student leaders now and as global citizens in the future. 
The fourth learning outcome is really to ensure that they can identify the resources across the campus that will aid in their retention and ultimate graduation from Washington State University. Um, if our programs cannot contribute to our institutional benchmark goals to ensure retention and graduation, that's problematic for us. And so we, run a, we want to be sure that our programs do reflect um, and that our students are aware of what resources um, are available to them to help them be successful. And their final learning outcome is, at the end of the day, how does leadership play a role in your everyday life? Um, you know, for students who, if they're first-year students and they can describe that leadership plays a role in their everyday life um, because they're, you know, trying to help de-escalate a, a, a situation with roommates in their residence hall or upperclassmen who serve as student body presidents and being able to articulate how they can, how they utilize leadership in that role. Um, we want to be sure that there's just the, you know, the practical um, knowledge base of how leadership does play a role in their everyday life. So as we integrate these five learning outcomes throughout our portfolio, you know, we are also doing constant assessment, um, both pre and post assessment, ultimate evaluation of how they, the experience was for them. And based off of our flagship programs, you know, for those students who started off with us as emerging leaders and will complete their leadership journey with us um, by graduating from leadership in WSU, um, our goal and our hope is that we've seen some substantial growth um, in, in regards to their responses, which are reflective of the growth that they've had in their leadership journey with us. Okay. That's great. So I'm really curious about, about this part of the process. So for the, the fifth question here in our sequence, uh, so we went through a, a similar process at my previous job. I recently left GW after five great years there, but um, we, we went through a similar process actually last academic year with, with rolling out a whole new portfolio of programs. And so I'm really curious to hear about what successes and challenges uh, you all faced in your first year of implementation there at, at WSU. For sure. Um, I certainly think this past year the success is that um, <laughs> we made it. I, you know, we've had some pretty long days and some long nights, and uh, a lot of effort was put forth by the professional and student staff. So I think when I look back at a success, you know, I look back at um, our student staff members, our student leaders, really advancing these new programs. Um, our Emerging Leaders program was revamped, and we were successful in its implementation. Our VIP program was brand new that was successfully ex executed that had, you know, 25 students complete the program. Our Leadership WSU program was successful, and that's a program where once a month we've got to take these students on an hour-and-a-half drive one way um, to our Spokane campus. And so, you know, things uh, – when I, when I think about successes and I think about – systems, which really goes back to one of the questions you asked earlier, is the importance of systems and the importance of creating infrastructure. I'm proud of the infrastructure that we were able to establish in our programmatic suites, because those programs would not have been successful had we not been able to build successful infrastructure early on. When I look back at the challenges, you know, we did take on quite a bit with rolling out so many new programs in one year that were going in a variety of different ways that involved a variety of different types of people and constituents, um, but that ultimately, you know, truth be told, Miles, it was that the fact that we were successfully able to build infrastructure to really ensure that those who were leading our programs 
had a good infrastructure in place to be successful, and that holistically as a staff and as a team, we were able to build kind of a, a larger framework for them to, to build out in. Um, I contribute the success this past year um, to the passion that our students who, who you know, 85% of our programs are student-led and student-driven. And there's only so much that I, as a professional staff member, can do to advance these programs. But if we did not have students who were as passionate about leadership, who saw the potential in the offerings that we could have offered, that we do now offer, and ultimately believing in themselves that they can successfully shepherd these programs to greatness, um, I think this phone call and this conversation would be much more different. But you know, ultimately, we had a group of student leaders who were ready to, to take on that load and run with the ball, and, and they, were, they were very, very, very passionate about it. Um, and, and, you know, I'm eternally grateful to them. And so when I think of those successes, I think of that. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately, I think there's a good question is if I had to do it all over again in that style, in that manner, you know, would I have? And I would absolutely have kept it like that. It's made us a stronger unit. It's made us a stronger center because it now will allow for us to really fine-tune the product and really make sure that it's the best that it can be because we were able to roll out so many programs in one year. Um, and I'm very pleased about that. I've, ga- I've gained, a, gained a quite a bit few more gray hairs that are hidden under my hair mm-hmm. product, but otherwise, you know, I, I think we're mm-hmm. as strong as we were um, the first day. Okay. That's awesome to hear. That's yeah. so exciting. What a, what a, what a great year. Um, all right, so for my last of the, the six big leadership questions here, mm-hmm. uh, something that, you know, that probably folks are the most interested in, what do you think that you've learned that would be applicable for, for folks to know who are rolling out programs at other places? What have you learned that would be applicable? Um, I've definitely learned the importance of really trying to build a framework and a foundation so that others can be successful in their roles. I had mentioned in the, my previous responses, I think if we were unable to be able to build a framework and build infrastructure for these other programs, they would, they would have collapsed upon one another strictly because processes and procedures would not have been in place for our student staff, student leaders to have been successful. So I've learned that, number one. I think number two, it goes back to you know, if you can build it, I think they will come. That's, you know, definitely from Field of Dreams. But this idea of our leadership center started off with an idea that I had. And we were able to flesh a lot of it out as we were able to do um, and gain feedback from constituencies after we were able to look at best practices, what other institutions were doing, um, after hearing from what students wanted. And so when I think about what I learned that would be applicable is – uh, really ensuring that your vision is inclusive of all these other tangents, but that also the buy-in is so important. If, I, if my staff didn't believe in what we were doing again, we would not have been as successful. Um, I think I had the proudest moment last March or this past March when my student executive director and one of our student directors presented us with um, – a proposal to integrate leadership certificate programs into our portfolio. And so these are specifically designed certificate programs that are non-credit bearing, but that really um, give more of a structure and a framework to our leadership center. 
that a student who's interested in business can get a leadership certificate in business or in social change um, or in arts and culture. And so I, I never asked for that. But they were so bought into it and saw so much of that potential, they presented it. And, you know, that's going to be in our rollout um, next year. So that'll be, you know, year three rollout, part of the, the strategic plan. Um, but again, if, if you build it, they will come. If they see the value and the belief in it, they can, student leaders can do amazing things. They just have to see that there's relevancy and that they can contribute some way. I think the last thing um, is – this isn't my program. This is, this is not my center. Um, you know, all I do is provide feedback here and there, but that ultimately I, I attribute our successes to everyone who's played a role in it. And so if you learn not to, uh, you know, take things as yours, but really it is a team effort, you will be successful. That I, and again, you know, Find those low-hanging fruit. Find those opportunities where if you don't have a student leader of the month program, that's something that was a pretty obvious one to us that was simple enough that we could integrate as opposed to you know, creating a new tier three program that was going to be a year long that involved us traveling to another city and involved a nonprofit organization. So you know, don't overthink it. Um, find something that you can you know, really call your own that you can articulate you know, this is, this is only special to Clemson, um, or this is only special, um, you know, to Cal, or this is special to Florida State. But again, you really want to have an opportunity for your students to say, I went to Washington State University, and I gained this amazing experience that I know for a fact no other student has had that opportunity. And maybe they have, and I'm just unaware of it. But, um, you know, don't be afraid to really be special and unique in what you can do. Find those low-hanging fruit build infrastructure, and, and really get the buy-in um, for others to really contribute and run with the ball. All right. So that is, that is the, the end of our show. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. And thanks to Rudy for joining me today and sharing about your work at WSU. Rudy, final Thank question. You. If you had one bit of advice to give to uh, aspiring leader, student leadership practitioners, what would you choose? Ooh, one piece of advice to student leadership practitioners. Um, I think, you know, student leadership doesn't just come in the form of Comavez or doesn't just come in the form of social change model or doesn't just come in the form of this podcast. You can find leadership and inspiration in a variety of ways. So don't be afraid to look for other places to find how leadership is done. Um, whether it is through another podcast, there's a podcast that I listen to that is has nothing to do with leadership. It has everything to do um, with business equity. But you find little nuggets here and there. So I think the one piece of advice I'd give to the listeners is keep your eyes open, keep your ears open. I guess if ears can be open, I suppose ears are open most of the time. Um, and and just see if you can find you know little nuggets of leadership around and find ways to include it into your program offering. Um, because it is so much more than just what our limited scope kind of is. Um, but leadership is out there everywhere. Find ways and be creative to integrate it. Okay. Awesome. So you can connect with Rudy via Twitter at Advisor Trejo. And you can get more information about the KCN or various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash SA Lead, 
on Twitter at NASASLPKC or on Instagram at NASA underscore SLPKC. You can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Miles, M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email at naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Rudy. Thank you, Miles. And I'm about to follow you on Twitter right now, sir. Okay. Well, it's uh, not a great follow. Okay. All right. Bye. (laughs) Thank you all.